good morning, everybody. Ooh, that was good. Uh, welcome again to Faith. My name is Mike. I am one of the pastors on staff here. It's great to be with you in person. It's great to be with you if you're joining us online today. Uh, as we are in week two of a series on the book of Esther. Now, before we uh, dive into things with the book of Esther, some quick uh, housekeeping stuff here. Uh, as many of you are aware, on Wednesday of last week, we were scheduled to have uh, KICY radio here with us. Uh, they are a radio station that um, works in western Alaska. They broadcast there. They actually broadcast Russia as well. Their station manager was with us. They had shipped uh, down, actually, uh, shipped down a whole bunch of uh, salmon, and we were going to have a salmon dinner with them, hear about the programming, and then um, they're going to do fundraising, basically go, hey, partner with us. So uh, I, I don't know if you're aware or not, but we got a bunch of snow here in Metro Detroit this week, all right? And so uh, Wednesday morning, we were sitting there going, okay, do we do the dinner? Do we not do the dinner? Which is always just a wonderful position to be in. And as we looked at the models and the, and the forecast and everything, we said, you know what? We think we need to cancel the dinner. So that left us with a number of problems. One, at their expense, the radio station had shipped all that salmon down, and they're going to take a bath on the salmon. Two, we wanted to get what they were doing in front of our people. And three, we wanted to give people an opportunity to partner with them. And so we said, hey, we're going to sell the salmon at church on Sunday and hopefully recoup some of their losses. So at worst case scenario, it's just an even thing as opposed to there in the red because of this. So um, something really weird happened. All right. Like I had a team scheduled for this week and next week to sell salmon. I'm like, I don't know if we're going to be able to get rid of the salmon. I don't know what we're going to do with it. I came in here on Thursday, all the salmon was sold out. Uh, people came, to, rushed into church, bought up all the salmon. All the salmon was gone. I was, I was dumbfounded, right? So here's the deal. Uh, a number of people were upset that they didn't get a chance to buy salmon. I kid you not, all right? So if you're one of the folks who did not get an opportunity to buy salmon, I'm really sorry that somebody else got the salmon that you wanted to buy. Um, there was very little about Wednesday that went the way we hoped or planned or thought it was going to go originally um, and did the best we could with that. Now, if your concerns were really for KICY and you're worried about, like, you know, are they going to lose money on the salmon? No, all the salmon was gone by Thursday. They didn't lose anything on that. If you're going, hey, I still want to partner with KICY, there are giving envelopes uh, out in the lobby you can pick one of those up, just put your gift in there. You can mail it directly to KICY. You can leave it here with the office. We will mail it to KICY uh, for you. And if you wanted to hear about what they're doing, you can go to the Facebook page, the YouTube page. And uh, Patty did a great job presenting. We live streamed that on Wednesday night, and you can get caught up on that. But again, if you're like, I'm bent because there's this inequity in how the fish went out there. The next time we have them and there's a massive snowstorm, we will endeavor to find a more equitable way to parcel off the fish. So, all right, so let's, let's pray for KICY, some things going on here at church, and then we will jump into Esther too. Father, um, I just want to pray for Colin Stang as he had emergency surgery this week, that you would have your hand healing on him, on his body, that you would draw him to you in the midst of all of that. Father, we pray um, just for Sue Heights who was going to see the oncologist this week. And um, 
she knows they're going to talk about chemo and, and radiation, and she's trying to discern, is that something she wants to pursue or no? Uh, give her wisdom. Father, we just uh, pray as we look at this next chapter in a book that in so many ways just puts a highlight on brokenness and reveals the darkness that can exist in our world, that you would meet us and that you would speak a message of hope to us in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a reading from Esther chapter 2. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. And let beauty be treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This idea appealed to the king. And he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jerah, the son of Shimshi, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among the captives with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadasha, who, had, who he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter, and when her father and mother had died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor immediately. He provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and, how, and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into the king Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. This is how she would go into the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem in the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. And when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who she saw. 
she was taken to the king in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any other of the women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Now, last week we started with Esther chapter 1. And uh, if you weren't here for Esther chapter 1, the preacher that week did an amazing job. You can check it out on YouTube. Um, but we saw with chapter 1 that uh, Esther is anything but a G-rated book. In fact, some of the stuff we read about in Esther chapter 1, we tried to use levity so it wasn't all too heavy, was just flat out disturbing. Well, as we get into Esther chapter 2, if you didn't tune me out or just you know, fall asleep as we're reading a really long passage there, you saw that things don't get less disturbing this week. They get more disturbing this week. In fact, some of what we're going to unpack here in Esther chapter 2 is just plain dark. And depending on your history, some of what we're going to unpack here in Esther chapter 2 may even be triggering for you. If you have been the victim of abuse, um, we're going to see unabused packed, un- unpacked here. And in, if you find this to be triggering, if this is emotional for you, if you need to step out, you have a permission to do so. Uh, if you have been the victim of abuse and you have never taken time to get help with that or to navigate that, uh, I would encourage you to consider our Shout ministry here at Faith. Shout is a ministry specifically for women who have been victims of abuse. If you want information about that, you could put Shout on your connection card. You could grab one of our staff. We would be happy to talk with you. Sherry Fornell is here. Sherry would be happy. Raise your hand, Sherry. She would be happy to talk to you after service about Shout. It is a great ministry for that. But again, what we're going to navigate here in Esther chapter 2, it is dark. And you go, well, why are you going there? Because even in the midst of the brokenness that is Esther chapter 2, there is an immense message of hope for you and for me. Even in the midst of the brokenness that we are going to see in this chapter, there is a message of hope that people like you and me need to hear. So, Esther chapter 2. Esther 2 begins with a problem for our man Xerxes. Just one problem after another for poor Xerxes, all right? If you remember, Esther chapter 1, Xerxes calls his wife Vashti. She won't come, and he's furious. So, in a drunken state, Xerxes basically makes a booze-fueled, emotionally charged decision that here in Esther chapter 2, he is now regretting. And we said last week that in a lot of ways this book is relatable. So anybody recently make an emotionally charged, booze-fueled decision that you are now regretting? All right, Alicia, I see your hand in the back. Thank you. All right. So, um, but, so this is where he's at, right? And, so, and, and here's the deal. There's, there's, there's been a chunk of time. A lot's happened. From, from the time Xerxes divorces Vashti to the time that he places the crown on Esther's head, you have about three and a half years. And a number of things take place. Like Xerxes gets his war with Greece. There are a couple of key battles where he gets his teeth kicked in, right? So now he's back home. He's, you know, got a bruised ego. He's licking his wounds. He's lonely. He's depressed. And he doesn't even have beautiful Vashti to console him. But fear not, 
fans of Xerxes. Because he's still got the idiot brain trust from chapter 1 to rely on, right? He's got his boys. He's got his posse. And so he goes to a group of men to, to come up with a solution. You're like, how do you know it's a group of men? When you hear the solution, you will be convinced. It was a group of men who came up with this idea, right? So his boys are like, Xerxes, you're, you're not doing well, brother. We got to help you turn that frown upside down. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to come up with a game show that is going to make people for thousands of years stand in awe. None of, none of this mass singer nonsense. None of this alter ego garbage. Forget Joe Millionaire, right? We're going to do Persia's Got Talent. There are two talents that we're looking for. Physical beauty and prowess in the bedroom. What we're going to do, brother, is we're going to scour the land. We are going to pick beautiful virgins from all over the country. We are going to bring them here to Susa. We are going to primp and preen them, bring them to the, the, just the pinnacle of perfection. And then we're going to bring each one of these girls into you one night at a time to audition. And the one who you like best, you get to pick, and she can replace Vashti. What do you say, big fella? Believe it or not, this advice appealed to the king. Yeah, shocker, right? Now, here's the deal. What is depicted to us in Esther chapter 2, you're not going to find this on a Sunday school flannel graph, right? In fact, we were doing production meeting before first service, and I said, hey, we're going to read all of Esther chapter 2, and somebody thought they were being funny. They're like, we're going to have people up front acting it out? No. No, not a good idea, all right? So here's, here's, here's what's going on in Esther chapter 2. Girls are taken to Xerxes to audition. And these are girls. They're, they're mid to late teens. Young women at best. And for a girl to move from the virgin's harem to the concubine's harem, there's something clearly taking place. They're not there to play checkers. When Xerxes says, king me, he doesn't have board games in mind. He is there to bed each one of these girls and then decide which one he likes best to pick for his queen. Now, we don't know how many girls are subjected to this, Josephus, ancient Jewish historian, put the number at 400. Scripture doesn't confirm or deny that. We do know this. Xerxes has at least 127 provinces. If he takes just one girl from each province, that's 127. And let's face it, the Xerxes who we met in chapter 1 he was not a model of self-restraint when it came to the pleasures of life. So in all likelihood, you have hundreds of girls who are being brought to Xerxes one night at a time for him to have sex with and then pick the one that he decides he likes best. They're not asked to love him. They're asked to entertain him. They are forced to abandon their hopes, their dreams, 
for a normal marriage, a normal life, a normal family, all those things go away. They spend a night with Xerxes, and then they go to the concubine's harem, where they'll never see him again unless he calls for them by name. And then if he calls for them by name, they're just coming back for more of the same. Then They're not going home to mom and dad and brother and sister and family. They're going to stay there. And if he never calls for them by name, they live there in perpetual widowhood. And any children they might have, they're going to serve in the royal court, but they will never be in line for the throne. You see, what we have here is the equivalent to Xerxes says to his frat buddies, I'm lonely and depressed. And their solution is state-sponsored human trafficking. Their solution is government-endorsed sexual abuse. This is their solution. And if you sit there and you're going, that is, that's just sick. That's exactly what you should be thinking because that's exactly what's unfolding here. Now, it's at this point of the story that we meet Mordecai and Esther, our heroes for the story. But here's the trouble with Mordecai and Esther. They're complicated characters. They, they do not look like you would expect biblical characters to look like. They don't act the way you would expect biblical characters to act. They're, they're, they're far more complicated than that. In fact, if you were an early Jewish reader reading the book of Esther, you'd get to chapter 2, read about the things that are described of Mordecai and Esther in this chapter, and you would just shake your head and you would cringe and you'd be like, oh no. For example, the, books, the book of Esther, the events that it describes, you go back in history about 100 years. You have the Jews living in Israel, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes in, wipes them out, takes almost all the Jews who remain, deports them, and makes them live in exile there in, in the geographic area of Babylon and Persia. Now, three generations have passed since that happened. And, and Mordecai is still living in Persia, even after the Persian government has said to the Jews, hey, you can go back home, which is exactly what all the zealous, godly Jews were doing under the leadership of Ezra, under the leadership of Nehemiah. They're heading back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, to realize again what it means to be God's people living in his land, showing the world what it looks like when a nation lives for God. Mordecai can do this. He chose to stay. Now, why would Mordecai choose to stay? Well, we're told that he lived in Susa and he sat at the king's gate. Modern translation. He lived in Washington, D.C. and he had a job on Capitol Hill. That's what it meant to live in Susa and to sit at the king's gate. It meant that you had a lucrative, influential job in Persian politics. But that means the Mordecai works for the Xerxes who we have been learning about. So his boss is a complete sleaze. You allowed to say sleaze at church? 
I don't know. His, his boss is a dirtbag, all right? <laughs> and why would he work for a guy like that? Because Mordecai's like, hey, your body wants to eat and live indoors. See, the fact is, in Persia, you could have a good life. There was money and comfort and possessions, power, influence. They were all available to people in Persia. All you had to do was play your cards right. All you had to do was live by the rules of the land. All you had to be willing to do was fade into the fabric of the culture. And fade in. Mordecai did. Take, for example, his name. Mordecai is not a Jewish name. It's, it's a derivative from the Babylonian god Marduk. Gang, this would be the equivalent today of running into a Jewish guy named Allah. Like, that's ridiculous. Exactly. Exactly. Right? Or, or Esther's not a Jewish name. She had a good Jewish name. Her deceased parents gave her the name Hadasha. She shed that name for the name Esther, which is a derivative from the, the, the Babylonian, Babylonian goddess of war, Ishtar. See, they had good Persian names so that they could blend in with the people around them. And again, blend in they did. Mordecai was so intent on blending in, he forbid Esther to tell anybody they were Jewish. Which if you understand Old Testament Judaism, that is so ironic. To be a Jew was to be separate. It was to be distinct. It was to be holy. God put this specific people in a specific geographic location to show the known world what it looked like when people lived for God. To be a Jew in the Old Testament was to be a billboard pointing the world to the God of the Bible. And yet Mordecai says, don't you dare blow our cover. See, they, they, they dressed Persian, they talked Persian, they had Persian names, they looked Persian. They even acted Persian. They even acted Persian. See, all that camouflaging, it led to compromise on Mordecai and on Esther's part as Esther finds herself in a horrific set of circumstances. There are circumstances that she had nothing to do with. She didn't contribute to them in any way, but her and Mordecai are left to respond to them. If you remember from the reading, Esther is a contestant in the Persia's Got Talent contest. We're told... She fit the bill for what Xerxes was looking for. We're told that she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Modern translation. She had a really nice body and a really pretty face. Now, not every girl gets both of those. For example, anybody here, old, and you probably need to be older to get this, nobody in first service, I was disappointed. Uh, anybody here familiar with the band The Monks? Ah, right, you got to go back to the UK, like the 60s, to know the monks. They are famous for the song, Nice Legs, Shame About the Face. All right? Nice Legs, Shame About the Face. You can look it up on YouTube. It's actually a clever song, right? Esther's a complete package. She's got great legs and a pretty face. Unfortunately for her, it lands her in the Miss 
Persia contest. And Mordecai's response to that, frankly, it is beyond disturbing. Think think about this dad's in the room. You discover that a man in his 20s or 30s is planning on betting your teenage daughter. How you responding? My daughter's 21. She's engaged. I'm still wrestling with this mess, right? Yeah. You know, I, when my daughter was a teenager, find out some guy in his 20s or 30s is getting ready to try and get with my daughter, I am going straight up Liam Neeson on Chester, right? Yeah. I'm going to be all like, hey, I have a very particular set of skills. Skills that I have acquired over a long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Amen, dads? Yeah, yeah. Mordecai does nothing like that. Mordecai knows what's coming. And he does nothing to stand between Esther and harm's way. Sure, he he walks back and forth, you know, to him and the king's gate. But he does nothing. He does nothing to put himself between her and Xerxes. He does nothing to put himself between her and harm. He complies. Do you remember the story that came out of Philadelphia in October of 21 that horrified the nation? 10 p.m., commuter train is heading into Philly, and surveillance video on the train picks up a man assaulting a woman in one of the commuter cars. There are other people in the car with them, enough that collectively they could have stopped it. And they did nothing. They were aware. They had footage on their phones of what took place. And they did and said nothing. They were unwilling to put themselves in harm's way to stop what they knew was taking place and what they knew was wrong. It's not an exact one-to-one, but this is what Mordecai did. He stood by and did nothing. And you can stand there and you, you can be tempted to say, well, what, what's poor Mordecai supposed to do? He can't defy the king. If he defies the king, Xerxes is just going to kill him and, and do what he wants anyway. No. He can too defy the king. Young Jew just a few decades earlier named Daniel defied the king of Persia knowing it would cost him his life if he did so and he did it anyway. See, this was Mordecai's Daniel moment. And he chose to do nothing. He just complied and compromised. And and poor Esther. Her story at this point is so complicated and so nuanced. I will tell you we don't have time to adequately unpack it. But just by way of summary, we watch neglect and abuse unfold right before our eyes. The man who should have stood between her and Xerxes 
did nothing. The man who should have been an example to her of what it looks like to take a stand for God regardless of the consequences encourages her to hide her relationship with God. As Jews, Mordecai and Esther knew the Old Testament law reserves sex for the context of marriage. The Old Testament law says, hey, as a Jew, you don't marry a non-Jew. Mordecai, Mordecai should have got, as he's walking back and forth by the, the gate, communicating with Esther, the, the message to her should have been, all right, little girl, this is your Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment. You tell the eunuchs, you tell Xerxes, the God I serve is able to deliver me from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, I'm not participating in this law law audition that you put together. And then, little girl, if he comes anyway, you fight him like some kind of rabid raccoon or something. <laughs> she gets no kind of message like that. And so caught up in horrific circumstances that are not her making, Esther complies. You say, how do you know she complied? We've already seen in chapter 1 how Xerxes responds to women who tell him no. It's rage and banishment, not reward in the crown. See, even though Esther wins the Miss Persia contest, she still loses. She's left to wrestle with guilt and shame and pain. She's left to wonder why Mordecai and even God didn't protect her. She's left to ask herself, could God really use somebody like me now? After I, after I change my name and I hid my faith and, and I feel like I'm just damaged goods, could God really use somebody like me now? See, we, we want our biblical heroes to be bold, unshakable, never compromise. And to some extent with Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego, we get that. But Esther and Mordecai, they're more complicated than that. They don't always look the way we want biblical heroes to look. They don't always respond the way we would hope our biblical heroes would respond in a critical moment. And, and like, this is a critical moment. If ever you wanted your biblical hero to stand up, it, it's now. You know, you want them to stand up and go, hey, state-sponsored human trafficking is wrong. We may not be able to stop it ourselves, but we are not going to stand by and do nothing. If we die, we die. But we are not going to be complicit in our, in our silence. We are not going to compromise. We, we, no. If, listen, here we take our stand. If it costs us our lives, then it costs us our lives. But in chapter 2, we see all kinds of disguise and compromise. In chapter 2, we see complicit. We just Go with the flow here. And yet, right here in the midst of Esther chapter 2, in the midst of this immense brokenness, there is a message of hope for you and for me. 
There's a message of hope if you know the rest of the story. Like if you just if you stop at the end of Esther chapter two, you're like, this is a jacked up story. I'm done. All right, it's gonna be nothing but dark and broken. So, spoiler alert. I'm gonna if you if you haven't read the rest of the book, I'm gonna ruin some of it for you. All right. Um, in the, in the chapters and weeks to come, we are going to watch Mordecai and Esther take off their disguises, refuse to compromise any longer. And we are going to watch a man like Mordecai be transformed and used by God in powerful ways. We are going to watch Esther be transformed and used by God in powerful ways ways. You see, there's this grossly oversimplified notion that we tend to hold in life that when it comes to life, there are really just two kinds of people. You got the good people and the bad people, and that's it. And God, he just loves the good people, and he just uses the good people, and whatever about the bad people. Life is way more complicated than this. In, In this kind of junk, all this does is lead to pride and despair, pride over how squeaky clean I've kept my life and how lucky God is to have access to somebody like me. Or despair. Because I've already blown it. So now what? Despair over what I've done or what's been done to me. Despair over whether or not I could really have any kind of greater meaning or purpose in life when I consider my history. See, Mordecai and Esther's lives, they're way more complicated than this. But there is hope for you and me in the complexities. You see, the the world we live in, it is every bit as faithless as the world they lived in. And if we're honest, for some of us, in the midst of that brokenness, we've responded more like the Mordecai or Esther in chapter 2, then we have a Daniel, a Shadrach, a Meshach, or an Abednego. For some of us, outside of people we go to church with, nobody knew we were a follower of Jesus if we didn't tell them. We blend in every bit as well as Mordecai and Esther did. Some of us, we see the brokenness that surrounds us, and we're not saying anything, we're not doing anything. We're complicit in our silence. Some of us, we act like and we think like the culture around us. Nobody accuses us of different. Some of us, we've been broken, we've been abused, we've been victims, and we've just been left shattered because of it. And you go, where the heck is the hope in that? Again, the hope is found in the rest of the story. Because as this story unfolds, we're going to see the God of this story is so great, he can even shoot a bullseye with a crooked stick. We're going to, again, we are going to watch Mordecai and Esther take their disguises off. We are going to watch them refuse to compromise and comply any longer. And we are going to watch God transform and use their lives in incredible ways. And there is hope for that in you and me. Because if Mordecai and Esther can take off their disguises, 
then so can we. If, if Mordecai and Esther can go from blending in to speaking out, then so can we. If Mordecai and Esther can go from being conformed to transformed, then so can we. If God can use them in a critical time, then he can use you and me in a critical time. And make no mistake, these are critical times. It's so funny to me. We wrapped up 2020. End of 2020, everybody's like, I'm so glad 2020 is over with. Life's just going to be all better now in 2021. How'd that work for you? Right? Change your calendar. It doesn't make life get all better. Think about 2021. Reading a book, some of the statistics from 2021. 2021, the entire year, depression was on the rise. Just kept getting worse. 2021, divorce rates were up 34% from the previous year. This, This one blew my mind. 2021, Calls to crisis hotlines were up 891 percent. 2021, one of four young people ages 18 to 24 surveyed said that they had thought about suicide in the last 30 days. Suicide rates were the highest they had been since World War II. If ever there was a time where the culture around us needed God's people to stand up and point to a God of hope, it's now. Listen to me. If you have more in common with Mordecai and Esther than you do Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego, this is the book for you. This is a book about a God who takes conformed people and changes them into world changers, transforms their lives. And so we want to invite you. Come back next week as we watch the drama just continue to unfold. As we watch God take conformed compromisers and transform them into courageous world changers. As we discover their story can be our story too. Would you stand with me as we pray, please? Before we worship, we want to pray. And whether you're here in person, whether you're watching with us online, if today you know you have more in common with the Mordecai and Esther chapter 2 than you do with Daniel, a Shadrach, a Meshach, and Abednego. But you long to be transformed. Transformation for Esther, for Mordecai, for you, for me, it starts with a life fully committed to God. And so as we pray, if you've never committed your life to Christ, I want to invite you to do that. Or if you've drifted so far from center, you need to realign again. Again, I want to invite you to pray with me as we move forward in this journey together. Father, thank you so much just for heroes who we can easily relate to. Father, thank you so much for a message of hope in the darkness. Father, some of us today, as we just think about where we're at, 
we confess to you we are broken, we are camouflaged, we've conformed, we've complied. We want something different. We can't do this ourselves. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. In this moment, we just want to put our faith, our hope, our trust in him, his life, his death, his resurrection. We want the forgiveness that he came to bring. We want the transformation that he offers. We just want to surrender all of who we are to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.